0: Good morning. Good morning. Ah, okay, thank you. Um, Let me get my uh, machine working here. This is actually a little bit embarrassing. It's been kind of a busy time and uh, I forgot to charge my iPad and I forgot to bring a cable. And so I'm at about 30% power right now. So maybe a few of you could, I don't know, go back to the cry room and just dedicate yourselves to prayer for my iPad. (laughs) Um, <laughs> it won't be the end of the world, although if, if uh, it starts to flicker and go blank, maybe if any of you have an iPhone charger want to run up here with it. Um, uh, anyway, hopefully it won't come to that. Uh, good morning. My name is Scott LeGraff. Uh, if you don't know me, I'm uh, a member of the Elder Board here. And uh, my day job, I am a professor, a music professor of all things, uh, up at SFA. And I teach kids how to sing like opera singers. Um, and it's a pretty amazing thing that the state of Texas will pay me to do that. Uh, and it's a, a great and wonderful thing. Actually, mostly what we do up at, at, uh, at SFA in the School of Music is we train future music teachers. Um, and uh, the reason I'm going into that a little bit is I, w- I want to start with a bit of a story related to when I started here at SFA. This is my 13th year at SFA. And when I first came, uh, we, have, we actually have a, a, a competition we go to every year. Um, the, the voice area from SFA goes, and our kids do really well. We have very talented students. Uh, and it's called uh, the Texoma Region of Nats. Nats, National Association of Teachers of Singing. That's my professional organization. Uh, who knew, right? So we take this group of kids, but before we go, we do a concert here. We do a performance here on campus to get kind of get them warmed up, uh, get the... Get the bugs out, you know. Find out how prepared they really are. So my very first semester here, my kids did horribly. Um, really at this at this uh, at this opening recital, they forgot their words, they forgot their music, they didn't sing well. I was mortified, and I thought, okay, well that's it. I'll be fired tomorrow. And um, at that time, Rick Barry, uh, some of you may know may know Rick. He for a time was a Uh, for quite some time actually, until very recently, was the provost. He's now the dean of the the graduate school, but he was the dean of the College of Fine Arts at the time, and he's uh, a voice teacher as well, and and a very well-respected, highly experienced voice teacher. And he came up to me after that concert, kind of saw the dismay on my face at my students' performances, and said, we are glad you're here. And that was kind of a big moment, I was able to say, okay, this is all right, they have my back. Um, It's okay that this didn't go nearly as well as I wanted it to go. Uh, Getting that vote of confidence from someone in authority made it easier for me to press on in the face of, uh, let's just say, adversity, to use a more general term uh, at that time, right? Difficult circumstances are easier to endure If there's someone going through them with us. So whether that's a a person in a place of authority saying, hey, it's okay. Um, We're giving you a vote of confidence. We see that in the NFL all the time, right? Bench that quarterback. No, the coach came out and gave a vote of confidence for Tony Romo or whomever. Um, And then Tony Romo broke his back again. Um, So uh, that is, I share that story to set up some context for the book of 1 Peter. We're beginning a series on 1 Peter uh, right now. So I'm going to set my stopwatch so I don't... Uh, oh, wait, no, I've got a clock up there. Great. Um, we're beginning a sermon series on the, first, on the book of 1 Peter. We just finished 1 John, right? Then we had Easter. Now we're starting the book of 1 Peter. And uh, so my goal today is to give us context, to, to introduce us to the book. Um, sorry, I'm kind of ringing here. You need me to do something? I'm good? Okay. And uh, so it is easy for us to see the books of the Bible kind of as these abstract treatises on... Um, oh, thank you, Cynthia, of course. Um, on... Uh, oh, awesome. Oh, this is perfect. So I'll just sit down here and chat while I'm plugging this in. So it's easy to see the books of the Bible as these abstract books on, you know, religious teachings on how we should live, how we should live these, you know, a good life and that kind of thing. And and, uh, although there is uh, a universal element to it, in reality, um, okay, where's my green? That should look green. It doesn't look green yet. Okay. In reality, they are, they were... Letters, or some, in this case, First Peter, was a letter written by an actual person, an actual guy, to an actual group of people in an actual historical setting, right? So there are, you know, although the, 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 the Holy Spirit superintended for these writings to be applicable for all time, they were originally written in a very specific setting. And the better we understand that setting, the better we understand what was going on at that time, The more fully we can understand what Peter was trying to say to his audience, and the more completely we can understand what God is trying to say to us today. Does that make sense? So it's a basic part of of any Bible study. If you're gonna do a good Bible study, you want to understand the historical context of the book that you're reading. So that's my job today. Okay? So at the very end, I'll get a little pastoral, but this is gonna be fairly professorial today we'll do a little history that kind of stuff all right i hope i'll try to keep it as as uh, engaging uh, as i can so uh, we're going to look at the text together uh, if you turn to if you have your pew bibles it's page 104 in the pew bible and um, Uh, it's actually a little a little odd the text I've chosen for today, or the text I'm using for today. I'm using the first couple verses of the book and the last couple verses of the book. So it's First Peter chapter one verses one and two, and then it's First Peter chapter five verses twelve to fourteen. And the reason for this is that these verses, this is kind of the greeting and the farewell, give us the most contextual information. Okay, so uh, you don't generally get whole sermons preached out of these passages, but um, That's what's going to go on here today. So let's take a look at our text. Come on. Good. 1 Peter 1, verses 1 and 2. Did I say if if you're using the Pew Bible, it's on page 1014. That's where it starts if you need to use the Bible in in the pew backs in front of you. So here's our text. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia... According to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. And then the last couple verses read, By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. So <laughs> there is a lot there, a lot of words, you know, Bithynia, my gosh, the dispersion, huh? Sylvanus. Um, uh, she who is at Babylon. It's almost, it's almost like code at some points, and actually we'll, we'll delve into that uh, a little bit. So our goal today is to answer four questions, okay? Who is the author? Who is the audience? What was the occasion? In other words, why is he writing this letter at all? And then what is, it, what is the purpose? Um, so what, what caused him to write the letter, and then what is he hoping to accomplish in writing this letter, okay? Uh, let's pray first, and then we will dive on in. Pray with me, please. Father, we thank you for your word, We acknowledge uh, that it is inerrant and authoritative for our lives, that although you wrote it to a specific group of people at a specific time, you wrote it for all of us for all time. And we thank you. Help us to to see and understand. May we know uh, you more fully as a result of understanding uh, the setting of this letter more fully. And as we go through this book of 1 Peter, Father, I I look forward to hearing how you will speak to us Uh, and how our lives will be made more like that of your son. And we know that this is only done through the power of your Holy Spirit. And it's in the name of your son that we pray. Amen. All right. So who is the author? Obviously, that's given away a little bit. I'm going to explain these pictures. Um, and uh, that's given away a little bit right at the beginning, right? Kind of a spoiler alert, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, right? The Apostle Peter. But who was the Apostle Peter? That's what we'll talk about here uh, briefly. So obviously, a, a well-known figure in the Bible, probably one of the better-known figures of the New Testament. Uh, he was a fisherman, a blue-collar guy, small business guy, right? He was actually in business, we think, with John. We just finished First John. These guys were business uh, partners, we believe. And um, but Peter's given name. So I'm sorry. Let me just more on that for really quickly. So Jesus came and called him right, and, and his brother Andrew called him into service and said, "I'm going to make you a fisher of men, uh, instead of fishing for fish, a fisher of men." Although fishing certainly plays a part uh, in Peter's life as we go throughout the New Testament, throughout the Gospels. His given name, however, was Simon. Right. His mom and dad named him Simon. Peter was a nickname given by Jesus. And Peter is based on, or sounds like, the Greek word for rock. My pictures make sense now? Okay. So Peter was the rock before the rock was the rock, right? Peter was the rock before rocky was rocky. But it's essentially, it's the the same nickname. Um, In Aramaic, that word is Cephas. The name is Cephas. Now, I throw all these names out here, not to try to impress you with these different languages, but because as you read the New Testament, he's actually called Simon Simon Peter, Simeon, Cephas, he's called all those. And they're, they're all referring to the same guy, okay? And that's why, uh, that, that's why I want to take a second to explain all that. So we know him as Peter, but Peter was his nickname, all right? Like we call Dwayne Johnson, we call him the Rock, right? So Peter, uh, as you may know from the New Testament, is a guy that it's kind of easy sometimes to um, laugh at as maybe a little harsh, but, but I think it's easy for us, with 2,000 years of being removed and, and looking at ourselves through a favorable lens, to say, oh, that guy, you know, a foot-and-mouth disease. He was always, um, he was all hot or all cold, right? No, no gray with Peter. So, as you recall, he was the guy who, when, when Jesus came walking to the disciples on the water, Peter stepped out of the boat, right? He had faith to step out of the boat, and he stood there for a moment, and then he doubted, and then he sank. And Jesus, you know, caught him, oh, you have little faith, Right? remember uh, at the Last Supper, when Jesus got up to wash the disciples' feet, and Peter said, you're never going to wash my feet. And Jesus said to him, Peter, if I don't wash your feet, then you have no part in me. So Peter said, well, then wash all of me. He's like, well, no, I don't need to wash all of you. You need to wash your feet. You've already been cleansed, right? So I was like, let's just find, you know, let's find a little uh, middle ground here, Peter. Right? Then, of course, perhaps most famously, uh, Peter told Jesus, this is Right before Jesus's trial and crucifixion, Peter tells Jesus, "I will follow you anywhere. I will follow you even to death." And Jesus says to him, "I tell you the truth that before the cock crows in the morning, you will deny me three times." And sure enough, Peter, after pledging uh, to go to his death for Jesus, denies even knowing him three times. Right, one time even to a, a slave girl, uh, a young a young girl. So um, he was kind of. All on or all off, all hot or all cold. Um, one of the most moving, I think one of the more beautiful passages in the New Testament is after Jesus' resurrection and after the disciples figure out what's going on, Jesus restores Peter. You can find this in John chapter 21 if you want to read that later on. Jesus res- restores Peter three times, right? So just as, Jesus, just as Peter denied Jesus three times, Jesus restored Peter three times saying, you know, Peter, do you love me more than all of these other guys? And and Peter said, yes, you know that I do. And Jesus says to him, feed my lambs. And he says to him again, Peter, do you love me? And he says, yes, you know I do. So Jesus says to him, tend my sheep. And then uh, he asks him one more time and is killing Peter. You know, Peter, do you love me? Yes, yes, I love you. And he says to him one more time, feed my sheep. So this threefold restoration to, uh, it's almost like with each affirmation, each one of those denials was, was symbolically wiped away. So Peter became uh, a leader in the the birth of the Christian movement, right? uh, And the first portion, the first third or so of the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, which is what happens after Jesus uh, ascends and, and kind of the birth of the New Testament church, the birth of Christianity. Peter is the central figure there in the book of Acts for the first third or so of it. Um, so, obviously, a uh, highly, highly important and influential uh, figure in the history of Christianity. Paul called him, the Apostle Paul called him, the Apostle to the Jews. And that's, what we'll, we'll hit on that here shortly as we talk about uh, our audience, okay? So, the audience, uh, a lot of big, unfamiliar words and names here in this one. Uh, those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Okay. Um, a lot to unpack here. A lot of terms to define. Um, the first I'm going to point out really quickly is elect exiles. We're going to hit on that again. So I'm going to skip on that. But I want to talk about what the dispersion is. Okay. So the dispersion, uh, it's also called the diaspora, uh, is, is the scattering of God's people. Okay, so in the Old Testament, the Jews were scattered from Israel when it was invaded, and the people were taken away to other countries. Uh, In the New Testament, Jewish Christians were scattered abroad during seasons of persecution. You can see that in in Acts uh, chapter eight, right when Paul, who was then Saul, was persecuting the church uh, at the death of Stephen. uh, A big persecution broke out of this young Christian church, and Jews, the, the Jewish Christians, fled. Um, from Jerusalem to other parts uh, of, of the Near East. So that would be a New Testament version of the Diaspora or the dispersion. So that's what Paul, or Peter is talking about here. He's not writing to a specific church. He's not writing like, say, Paul did to the church at Ephesus or to the church at Corinth or to the church at Thessalon- Thessalonica, but rather to a group of people who are scattered throughout Asia Minor. And I'll show you where, where these places are um, in just a second. But, but in this book, in First Peter, Peter seems to use the word, uh, the diaspora, to refer not just to Jewish Christians, but to Gentile Christians as well. In fact, he's actually writing to Gentile churches, churches in uh, more Gentile uh, uh, regions. So here is... Okay, good. It's up there. Um, you can see that red circle there, right? Uh, can I poke on this? Will that make me... Oh, no, it's a different program. I have a program where I can poke on that, and it'll make a, make a light show up. But you can see the, the red circle, right? You see Asia, Bithynia, Galatia, Cappadocia, and Pontus. Those are the regions that Peter is writing to in this. And you can see down there in the bottom right, Palestine, you see Jerusalem, right? Paul, when he was a missionary, kind of went up along that coast of the Mediterranean and around down in the southern portion of that red-circled area. We don't have, we don't know of any history where Peter was up there. So Peter is writing to Paul's people. Interesting, huh? We'll, we'll, we'll hit on a hypothesis about that in a second. But, uh, and then they believe, you can see Colossae maybe up there, uh, Ephesus over there, just to the left of the circle, that perhaps churches here that were founded by Paul then sent missionaries up into this region uh, and, and uh, spread the gospel there. Peter is writing from Rome. You see Italy up there in the far left, right? So that's where Peter is at the time he's writing. We'll hit on that in just a second. And that's where Paul is at this time as well. So you have these churches that are kind of on the, the outskirts of the Christian movement. They're, they're probably not highly organized. It's not like in the big cities where, where they have people like Timothy in Ephesus or, or Titus in Crete uh, or, or James and John in or James in Jerusalem. John in Jerusalem. Um, But rather, they're they're sort of out there, and they're on their own, and uh, we'll get into the importance of that uh, in a minute. So, uh, yeah, these are probably the most vulnerable to leave the faith in times of persecution, in the face of persecution. And so this letter was meant to be circulated among all these churches, right? So uh, a guy named named Sylvanus. we'll talk about him in just a minute, is going to be taking and delivering this letter around to churches in this region. So that's our that's our audience. A mixture of Gentiles and Jews up there in Asia Minor, um, uh, perhaps a little isolated. Let's see, was there anything else I needed to cover on that last one? No, I got it all. Good. Okay. So this moves us now on to our occasion. Why is he writing? He is writing. Probably, let me me get to the date here for a second. A date that I saw was around 64 AD. 64 AD is a really important date in the history of Rome and in the history of Christianity. We'll hit on that in two seconds. But he wrote at some time in the mid 60s AD. A lot of things were going on right then. So we believe it was written from Rome because he says, I'm writing from Babylon. Right, no. Why Why does that work? Babylon, largely ancient Babylon, was pretty much deserted at that time. Rome, or Babylon, was the code name that young early Christians would use for Rome, for safety's sake. They didn't want to write these letters that were kind of uh, undercutting the authority of Rome and saying, hi, I'm Peter, I think Rome is terrible. So when it's found, the Roman authorities could come and and uh, punish him for that. So we see it in the book of Revelation as well, that when these early Christians talked about Babylon, they were talking about Rome, okay? So that's how we know that Peter was writing from Rome. At this time, Nero was the emperor of Rome. You've probably heard of Nero, and Christians were facing cultural, kind of a general cultural uh, persecution at that time, okay? So when when Nero took over, I can't remember when it was, 57, 52, something like that, uh, when Nero took over, uh, Rome did not like Christians. Christians rejected the Roman gods. They did their own thing. They were not well-liked culturally. And so they, they always faced some level of persecution within the Roman Empire. So um, Peter could be speaking into this, but there's a huge event in AD 64, uh, eight, 64 AD, not 8064, but 64 AD, um, the fire of Rome. You may have heard the, 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 the saying... Uh, fiddling while Rome burns. Anyone heard that, right? We're sitting there twiddling our thumbs while things are are falling apart around us. Uh, 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 An expression that some will use in that that situation is we're fiddling while Rome burns. That's a reference to to Emperor Nero who allegedly fiddled while this great fire of Rome was going on. Of course, there weren't fiddles back then. He was probably playing a harp or singing. He did like music. Um, Can't trust these musicians, right? And um, so in the fire of Rome in 64 AD is a big historical event. And Nero went on to blame the Christians for this fire. There's some historical evidence that Nero had the fire set himself because he wanted to build something new, but there's, uh, but it is believed that Nero then um, blamed the Christians for the fire. And so this general kind of cultural persecution became very, very intense. It became state-sanctioned, even state-led, right? And um, so. Uh, Christians were um, fed to animals, right, dressed up in, in, I don't know, meat robes and fed to dogs, and um, they, were, they were dipped in pitch and used to light the gardens in Rome as they were, they were set on fire, okay, burned, and just horrible, horrible things were done to Christians during this time. Peter was, Peter was martyred during this time. Paul was martyred during this time, both in Rome, okay? So, uh, now, while most scholars seem to indicate that they think that the letter was written before the fire of Rome, the bottom line is, whether it was written before or after, that Christians were facing persecution throughout the entire Roman Empire, and Peter's writing to them to to tell them, to encourage them uh, on how to deal with it, okay? So, the question arises, why is Peter, now that we realize what Cappadocia and Bithynia and Asia and those sorts of things are and where they are, Why is Peter writing to Paul's churches? He doesn't have any type of of pre-existing relationship with them. And I'm going to throw this out there just because I found it very interesting and it came from, I think, a credible source. Uh, uh, A professor at Dallas Theological Seminary actually is saying he thinks that what happened is that Paul was martyred first before Peter and that Peter was writing to this group of churches, because Paul couldn't now, and because they wanted to encourage them, words probably leaking out that their spiritual grandfather has been executed by the Romans, and Peter is the one to whom it falls, to encourage these guys to to stick with it, to stay with the faith, even though things are about to get um, really rough. Now, that is speculation. That is not a hill worth dying on, but that is a hypothesis that certainly answers some interesting questions. Good. Good. Also a quick note on, on those who are with Peter. Uh, you'll, you'll notice at the end of chapter five, Sylvanus is a guy that we also know as Silas. and in Acts chapter 16, Silas and Paul have an encounter with the Roman or with the Philippian jailer. If you remember that story, there's an earthquake and they're released from their chains, and the, and the, and the Roman jailer, sorry, comes to them and says, "How may I be saved?" And uh, and they tell him, you know, believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved, you and your household, right? So that's Paul and Silas. So again, Silas is one of Paul's close companions. But Peter is writing um, along with him. And he was, Silas was the deliverer of these letters. And probably even, or possibly even, a scribe. The, the word they use is amanuensis. We'll just say scribe. In other words, Peter said to Silas, we think, or to whoever was his scribe, but Silas is the leading candidate, he said, this is what I want to say to these churches. I want you now to write it out in what is going to be like the best Greek in the New Testament, because that's what we get in, in 1 Peter. It's, it's among the best Greek in the New Testament. And that's why they think that Peter used someone else to help him write it. Okay? Good. We see Mark in there. Mark was a companion both to Peter and to Paul uh, throughout the book of Acts and even in the Gospel of Mark. And then finally, we have this phrase: "She who is at Babylon," uh, is we believe, is a reference to the church in Rome. Okay, the church as the bride of Christ. She who is at Babylon is another, another code way of saying all the Christians here in Rome are with you as well. Okay, good. Finally, we get to the purpose. Now we're going to get to. Um, come on now. There we go. Good. All right. Um, why is Peter writing this letter? And we're going to get to some things now, I think, that, that we can uh, apply a little more to our own lives. Okay? So you remember my story from the beginning of the sermon, right? Um, uh, when when Dr. Berry uh, kind of gave me that vote of confidence, that vote of assurance, in the face of what seemed to me like a pretty abysmal failure. Um an encouraging word from a person in authority can go a long way during hard times. Remember our audience. These are likely young converts. They're likely, they likely have little pastoral care, little church organization um, out on the outskirts, kind of the vanguard of Christianity. They're facing increasing persecution for their faith. And if this was written before the fire, then... Uh, there is much more intense persecution on the way, right? So it is, it is. Hang on, uh, in this tough time, things are going to get worse before they get better. And then possibly, again, this is speculative, but possibly they've heard just heard of the death of their spiritual grandfather. Whether that's true or not, it doesn't change uh, the previous points. Okay, but I think that there are there are three additional reasons for writing that are going to be teased out over the course of this sermon series. Peter's writing to assure them that God is with them in the midst of their struggles, in the midst of their tribulations, their persecution. He's writing them to encourage them to stand firm in their newfound faith in Christ. Don't punt this because life is getting difficult. And then finally, he's writing to remind them or to instruct them that the way they live out their faith can be transformational in the lives of those who are watching. Okay, if you've maybe heard that, that phrase, um, preach the gospel at all times, when necessary, use words, right? That's uh, it's kind of a good one. That could be a theme of the book of 1 Peter. Now, certainly we need to use words to, to, to tell and help people understand the gospel. But the book of 1 Peter, he gives many examples or many encouragements of how we behave, our relationship with authority figures, our relationships within our families, our relationships in our workplace, how uh, the way that we conduct ourselves in these settings can be transformational to those who are around us and to those who are looking at us. We won't go into that today, but but I look forward to hearing about that as we uh, go forward through this, this um the sermon series. So this first point, to assure them that God is with them in the midst of their struggles, is driven home even in his greeting. Okay, from the very first verse in the book, he is assuring them that God has them, that God is with them, that they are not alone in their trials. Right. So remember uh, our, first, our first verse, "...to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, etc., according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit." for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. Now, there is a lot here theologically, probably several sermons in this single greeting, right? In 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 the space of two verses, Peter tosses out two of the biggest, most difficult theological concepts to understand, election and the Trinity. And he just kind of tosses the Trinity out there, um, you know, doesn't, doesn't uh, give it a second thought. He doesn't really give the idea of, of election a second thought. It's just we who are later here, you know, fight or figure out and and fight over these things theologically. But I want to take a moment to really focus on elect exiles. This this phrase elect exiles, okay? Because I think he uses it very, very purposefully. So let's start first with the word exiles. Exiles can also be translated aliens or pilgrims. Uh, It's a reminder, uh, a general reminder. It's not really a statement to these people who have been exiled from Rome or from From their original homes, uh, it can mean that, but it doesn't only mean that. It also refers to all of us as Christians who live as exiles, who live as pilgrims, who live as aliens in this world. It's a reminder that this is not our home, right? That heaven is our home, and eventually heaven will come to earth. But it's a reminder not to love what's going on here so deeply that it chokes out Or blinds you to um, what your true home is. So that's what we get with exiles. But um, elect is the money word in this context. Okay? Elect is the money word in this context. And so we deal with God's choosing versus man's choosing. Predestination versus free will. So elect means that God chose us. Right? That that we didn't choose God. God chose us. Us and that can cause some struggles, okay, mentally, uh, philosophically, theologically, and in fact, different denominations have built been built up around how you approach this uh, this topic or this this paradox. Uh, I believe that the Bible affirms both. Okay, Tim Keller preaches on this a lot, so I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna appeal to him as as uh, an authority. Uh, so that you don't think it's just me um, kind of wandering off here. But I believe that the Bible affirms both our choosing and God's choosing, right? So Peter, the author of this book, uh, his sermon in Acts chapter 2 tells his listeners to repent and be baptized, make a choice, choose to do this, repent and be baptized, right? Uh, Even as here he's saying to them, God chose you. How these two work together I don't claim to fully understand, but I believe that that's more of a modern Western struggle than it was an ancient Near Eastern struggle. I don't think Peter struggled with that, and the writers of that time struggled with that. Um, But I firmly believe that they they do work together, and I think that the context will dictate which of these you're going to emphasize, which is the point I want to make about election. Peter emphasizes God's choosing, Because of the context in which his audience is living. Do you tell them as they are about to face the most severe persecution, more severe persecution than they can even imagine? Hold on tight. It's all up to you as you're being burned to death or crucified or run through with a spear or whatever. It's all up to you. Your eternal destiny is up to you and you better hold on, hold on firmly in the face of that or uh, you'll be sorry that you didn't, right? Is that the message you want to give to these people who are about to to face their, their greatest persecution yet? I don't think so. So Peter emphasizes God's choosing. He tells his readers that God has them in his hands, that he chose them. It's no accident that they are his, but that he chose them and he holds them and that their salvation is not dependent upon themselves, but upon him, him who chose them. It's a reminder that God can use even their most severe tribulations to accomplish his purposes in their lives and in the lives of those who are watching, right? That is certainly much more comforting and encouraging to hear In the midst of persecution, in the midst of tribulation, it imparts strength, it imparts confidence, it imparts hope, and it affirms the biblical truth of God's choosing, which somehow works with man's free will. But God, Scripture is clear that God does indeed draw and choose. So let's take a second and transition uh, as we wrap up here, transition from this historical context to a universal principle. In other words, what does this mean for us today? Um, I have a verse up here, a passage up here, that is very much related to what Peter is saying when he talks about the elect exiles, okay? This is John chapter 10, verse 27 through 30. This is Jesus speaking, and he says, "'My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish,' and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them, snatch them out of the fa- Let me say that again. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So what does this mean for us? So here's what it means, I think, anyway. First of all, if you have trusted Christ... You have been chosen by God, like Peter. You are an elect exile. And that means that God holds you in his hand and will not let you go, no matter your circumstances. So God can use the trial in which you find yourself if you find yourself in the midst of trial. Um, The death of a loved one, a sick loved one, difficulty at work, uh, the loss of work, uh, uncertainty over the future. Um, We are not at a point, certainly in our country, where here, where we're facing execution for our faith, we're certainly seeing that uh, elsewhere in the world. Um, I say that not to belittle the the trials that we face, but um, to say that if God can hold you in the midst of those trials, in the face of execution, um then he can certainly hold us through the trials that we face today in this country right and as individuals so that the rain falls on the just and the unjust as, as scripture tells us uh, Jesus said in this world you will have trouble but i but take heart i've overcome the world right that that little that uh, <laughs> that little quoted promise of Jesus in this world you will have trouble right that's that you don't see that on gr- greeting cards very often um <laughs> So, but the point of this passage is that God holds you in his hand and will not let you go, no matter how severe your trial is. And he can use that trial to accomplish his purposes in your life and in the lives of those who are watching you. Peter tells us later in this book, he says, cast your cares upon him because he cares for you. In other words, trust him. You're not alone. Tell him your problem. Be like David in the Old Testament and tell him, pour your heart out to him and say, I don't like this, I don't like this, this hurts, I'm sad about this, and then let that turn you to praise and trust because he holds you. If you'd like to talk or pray about a current trial or to learn more about what it means to trust in Christ, you can come talk to me after the service. You can always email us at elders at gracebiblechurch.com. We want to know, we want to help. We want to be involved, as involved as we can be. Uh, I'm going to pray right now. Then we're going to sing one more song, and then we're going to be dismissed. Uh, I thank you for your attention. Pray with me, please. Father, we thank you for that promise that you have chosen us and hold us in your hand, and that no one can take us out of your hand. Elsewhere, to paraphrase Paul, you tell us that uh, there is nothing that can separate us from your love in Christ. Thank you for the promise. Thank you that it is you who holds us. Thank you that it is you who first loved us. And thank you that you have drawn us to yourself. May we, as we face our, uh, the, the tribulations and trials of this life, cast our cares upon you because you care for us. May we turn to you independent, need, grateful that you are the one who holds us. May our lives be living gospels, living epistles, living letters uh, in the face of that truth, in the face of the fact that you hold us uh, and will not let us go. May those around us be transformed as they see us trust in you in the midst of difficulty. And we pray these things through your Son. Amen.